How's it going, everybody? Welcome again to the podcast. The podcast is called Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I am Tanner, and I'm going to be talking about some stuff that happened. Now, a quick reminder before we start here, this podcast is not intended to be any kind of elaborate detailing of any of the events that I cover throughout the course of the podcast. It's only intended to be a crash course in the things that took place. That's why it's not six or seven hours long, and instead, I usually work around the 20 to 30 minute mark. Sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less, all things depending. And this event that I'm going to be covering is not necessarily one event, but a series of events and policies that were instituted. So this week, well, August is going to be a little bit different from my standard format where I do an episode on music and culture, then I do an episode on economics, an episode on ancient history, and an episode on war. That is the format that I'm going to be following for the most part, but August is going to be a little bit different. We're switching up those a little bit. This week, we're talking about economics. Next week, we're talking about ancient history. The following week, we're talking about music and culture. And the week after, we're talking about war before returning to our regular format. And the reason for that is because there's specific dates that are going to be lining up with the next few episodes. Um, next week, we're talking about the Vikings, which is going to be sweet. And the week after, we're talking about the Monsters of Rock concert in the Soviet Union. Um, that happened almost on the day that I'm going to be releasing that episode, and that's why I chose to do that. But for the most part, we'll be sticking to the format of the alternating four different subjects, unless I decide to add more into it. We'll also be including a few special topics occasionally. So, this week, as I said, we're talking about economics. And what economics are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the second five-year plan in communist China. Now, communist China follows a lot of five-year plans, but why was the second five-year plan so important? Well, the second five-year plan is called the Great Leap Forward. And it was probably the most memorable of all of the five-year plans instituted by communist China, which are still being used today. So that's why we're covering that. And if you're enjoying the podcast so far, right before we start, I'm just going to say subscribe to it wherever you listen to podcasts or drop a review if you really like it. It really does help us get more people involved with the conversations about history. I love to make things a little bit more interesting for people who maybe think history is boring. Um, that's kind of one of the purposes of this podcast. So let's get started. We're talking about the Great Leap Forward, the second five-year plan in communist China after the communist takeover. So what is the Great Leap, Great Leap Forward? Well, the Great Leap Forward, as I've said, was a five-year plan instituted by the Chinese Communist Party in 1958, concluding at the end of 1962. It was a campaign focused on economic and social policies, and the primary goal was to shift the country from an agrarian society to an industrialized communist society. And we're going to dis dissect all of that. Don't freak out if there's some things you don't quite understand. We're going to get really deep into this specific part. So very first, A, what is the five-year plan? Well, a five-year plan is a method of planning economic growth over a limited period of time through the use of quotas usually in socialist states, first practiced by Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union back in 1928. So China to this day, today in 2020, and probably as far forward as I can see, it doesn't seem like they're going to stop being communist anytime soon. China to this day operates under these series of five-year plans. Um, they, bega they began in 1953 and they just continued onward. So the first five-year plan from 1953 to 1957 
was considered considered a success. And it's, that sounds like four years, but it began at the beginning of 1953 and concluded at the end of 1957. So it was five years. So that was considered a success. And I mean, even today, that can be considered prosperous for the Chinese nation. And Mao Zedong, totalitarian leader of China at the time, expected for these kind of successes to continue. So he so spurred forward by the numbers from the time and uh, from the first five-year plan. In 1958, Chairman Mao desired to move forward more quickly to a strictly communist state and enforce more stringent requirements for the second five-year plan, an initiative he called, here we go, the Great Leap Forward. So B, Remember, A was, what is a five-year plan? B, what economic and social policies was Mao seeking to change? First and foremost, Mao Zedong was attempting to establish a truly, purely communist society by way of abolishing money and setting up communal living situations. Next, Mao wanted to completely industrialize the country to repay debts to the Soviet Union that had been incurred during the first five-year plan. And finally, Mao wanted to purge the country, finally, of political opposition, evolving China into a one-party state, sealing the deal on the communist ideology. C. What does a movement from agrarian-based economics to industrial communist economics entail? Alright, prior to the Great Leap Forward initiative, China was lagging behind the Soviet Union after World War II. Mostly because the war had really jump-started the Soviets' industrial sectors and springboarded them into a new industrial age. I mean, think about how it brought the U.S. out of the Great Depression. Similar thing happened to the Soviet Union, and that had bolstered their economic growth and prosperity. So Chairman Mao had taken notice of this and decided to reallocate the majority of the Chinese workforce to follow suit in this new communist industrial revolution. All of these farm workers that were going to be moved to these industrial centers were going to be replaced by this large mechanized farming equipment, and those workers would have their nose put to the grindstone in dangerous and very hastily built factories while their farms were collectivized. <laughs> Definition of the day, what does it mean for something to be collectivized? Here it is. To collectivize something is to abolish all private ownership of that thing or industry and put all product created by that thing or industry being collectivized under the jurisdiction of the state. In this specific context, all farm goods were to be handed over to the Chinese government before being redistributed to the public. Prior to the Great Leap Forward, most Chinese farms had already been collectivized, but all Chinese citizens were still allowed to have small plots of private land for them to grow their own food privately for consumption by their families. So you were allowed to have a little private garden for your own, for whatever you liked. The Great Leap Forward abolished this small garden entirely, making it illegal to privately grow any food for yourself. So before the Great Leap Forward, you could grow carrots on your farm because you liked carrots. And now with this new collectivization, those carrots that you grew belonged to the Chinese government. And any of those carrots that you took for yourself were carrots that you were stealing directly from the state. That is collectivization. So how on God's green earth did Chairman Mao go about implementing a cultural, economic, and social revolution on this scale into the society of the world's largest country in five years? Well, he did so systematically. 
One of Mao's goals was to surpass the production of grain and steel done in the United Kingdom in 15 years, and he knew there had to be a drastic overhaul in population distribution in this country in order to achieve that. So he developed a system that would create a society that would maximize the output of all Chinese citizens. And by that, I mean that Mao tried to embrace the entire ideology of communism in its purest form, which was establishing actual communes throughout the country. Communism communes. In the year 1958, the first of these communes were established in China. But it's not the type of commune you'd imagine with a bunch of people binding together to create an ideal community. No, this commune had a bunch of, had a 5,000 households, give or take, and was fueled entirely by the farms and households that had previously been collectivized. All food produced was handed over to the local government entity, which would uh, be sent to urban areas to support the rapidly industrializing society, without any of the remaining food left over for the citizens to enjoy, completely free of charge. And the most prominent memory of communal life in China during the Great Leap Forward were these were uh, these communal kitchens that existed in, the, in this first commune, which would become present in every future commune. Household kitchens were abolished. Now think about that. You weren't allowed to have a kitchen in your house anymore. It wasn't allowed. All silverware or other cooking utensils were reallocated to this communal kitchen, where food would be prepared for everyone in the commune free of charge. Isn't that kind of weird to think about? So after this first commune was established, Chairman Mao decided it was going to work. So he gave the order for all rural communities to be repurposed into these communes, and no one in the country was allowed to live isolated from these communities. With this, anyone who had been left behind by the first five-year plan was wrapped up in the second, being shipped off to one of these large communes with their families, usually with their entire property being destroyed and leveled for use for a larger commune. Now let's get clear about this. A lot of Chinese citizens initially kind of liked the idea of this communal life. Food was free, even if you decided not to go to work that day. And this was part of Mao's master plan to institute, institute true communism throughout the country. And the country did initially begin to industrialize on a massive scale. The grain quotas that Mao had ordered to be exported throughout the world were being met and exceeded. In the communes, mass farming had led to an abundance of food, and it was all free. It seemed that the golden age of China was upon the country, and all thanks to the communist ideology of Mao Zedong. But unfortunately, this hope was short-lived. Chairman Mao was curious in the realms of experimental science, particularly when such science could potentially expand his already burgeoning grain reserves, and one of these experimental sciences was called deep plowing. And in this method of agriculture, seeds would be planted five feet into the ground and much closer together. Hypothetically, this would create stronger root systems in the plants, and placing the seeds closer together would yield more crops, right? Well, a modern baseline understanding of biology is going to prove that wrong. Planting the seeds so deep in the ground and so close together collectively stunted their growth. And within a year, instead of doubling the food, um, this new science effectively slashed production by half or more. Putting a significant strain on supply lines. Because the country was now an enormous commune, 
urban centers continued to need food from farms, and the same amount of food continued to be relocated to these urban areas from the communal spaces. And to add to this, Mao had increased his demand for industrial labor, removing more laborers from the farms and bringing them to the industrial sectors, which further decreased food output. And as the cherry on top of all of this, China began to fall victim to what is, in my opinion, one of the eventual downfalls of all communist societies. In an earlier episode where I compared capitalism, socialism, and communism, I gave this example. If there are 10 people living and working on a farm, they all bring in what they've reaped from the fields at the end of the day and have a meal together. 10 people do work for 10 people to eat. And this continues until one person decides to take a day off. They're kind of tired. They've worked a lot. And so nine go out into the field and bring in the supplies for dinner. They brought in the workload of nine people. But the one person who decided to take a day off still has to eat. And with nine people working, there's still enough food for 10 people. So all's well. During the meal, two other workers noticed that even though the first hadn't done any work, they still got to eat. So they decided to take a day off as well. And now eight people are doing the work for 10 people to eat. Again, Three other workers see this, and they decide to take a day off as well. Now, seven people are working for ten people to eat. And this cycle continues until there's not enough food for people to eat, and it becomes a problem. And this is exactly what happened in communist China during the Great Leap Forward. Because food production was now down, people could no longer eat as much as was needed to stay healthy, and they began to get sick, to feel weak, or just to take an extra day off to rest, with little to no punishment by the government. And as a result, food production fell behind even further, and with all these factors coming into play, a true humanitarian crisis befell the nation come the end of 1959. Widespread starvation. Mao was stubborn, and he was adamant that he had to continue to demonstrate to the world that his policies were working he did nothing to lower exportation quotas for grain or industrial goods and insisted that they continue to be met, pretty much just to save face. What little food the commun communes generated was exported abroad for profit or, di or distributed to industrial sectors. And it's reported that when trucks arrived at communes, grain would be loaded on board at gunpoint. Anyone who refused to hand over their grain was taken to notorious Chinese prisons and likely never heard from again falling victim to the second pitfall of nationalized communism, labor under the threat of death. At this point, food in the communal kitchens ceased to be free and had to be paid for with either currency or labor points, which was a system to track how often a citizen was working. Because citizens were often too sick or too weak to work, they had to start using what little currency they had to buy minimal amounts of food exorbitantly priced, by December of 1959, less than two years after the second five-year plan was implemented, reports of death by starvation began reaching the higher-ups in the Chinese government. And still, Chairman Mao would not change his policies. The people began to be restless and started desiring change. Citizens began voicing their complaints against a government who seemed to care very little for their survival. Farmers who had lost homesteads that had been and their family for generations were upset, and citizens whose businesses had been repossessed by the government only to fail due to the lack of revenue were frustrated. Everyone was hungry. 
unrest was brewing in the nation, and Chairman Mao would have absolutely none of it. This phase of the Great Leap Forward saw what would be remembered as an anti-rightist campaign. And I don't mean rightist meaning human rights. I mean rightist as in people who did not believe in the left side of the political spectrum, meaning communism. They believed more in a capitalist society. So this campaign was a systematic persecution of anybody who voiced opposition to collectivization, a one-party state, and or spoke out in favor of capitalism. These Chinese citizens, usually intellectuals, were hunted down by Chinese police and imprisoned, usually forced to endure a barrage of criticisms by a tribunal or perform an unspecified amount of hard labor before returning to their communal spaces and in an undocumented amount of cases, execution was carried out. It's estimated by researchers, modern researchers, that between 500,000 to 2 million Chinese citizens were persecuted during the three-year campaign, and it's unknown how many were never seen again. So Mao had adopted his special form of communism, communal living, collectivization, the nullification of currency, suppression of political opposition, and rapid industrialization. On paper, he had achieved his goals. So how was it playing out across the country? In short, not well. Really, really not well. In 1959, grain production dropped by 15%. By the end of 1960, it had dropped by 70%. The Chinese government began receiving reports of death tolls, but either grossly underestimated the reports or ignored them entirely. If the world knew of the truth, communist China would become a laughingstock, and there could be none of that. Chinese reporters started launching deep investigations into the use of grain from China's communal farms, and found what found that while hundreds of thousands or even millions of people were starving to death, China's grain reserves were full to the brim in many instances, but were all being allocated to export to different countries. These reporters attempted to blow the whistle on this, but were immediately silenced by the anti-rightist campaign. They were accused of being capitalists, they were labeled political opposition, and they were either re-educated or disappeared into the Chinese prison system. And all the while, through 1959 and 1960, the death toll continued to climb. Outside granaries, stocked to the brim with grain, people died of starvation, shouting, Communist Party Chairman Mao save us. That's a quote by Yang Jisheng, a Chinese journalist who survived the ordeal. And after that, he writes, quote, If the granaries of Henan and Hebei had been opened, no one need have died. As people were dying in large numbers around them, officials did not think to save them. Their, cons- their only concern was how to fulfill the delivery of grain. End of quote. The stringent demands of the second five-year plan and the desire to meet the quotas outlined came before the survival of the population. But as people continued to die, the workforce continued to diminish, leading to even less food production. Yu Dehong, uh, the secretary of a Chinese Communist Party official, traveled from commune to commune during the Great Leap Forward initiative to collect statistics. And he wrote, quote, I went to one village and saw 100 corpses, then another village, and another 100 corpses. No one paid attention to them. People said that dogs were eating the bodies. Not true, I said. 
The dogs had long ago been eaten by the people. Close quote. By the end of 1960, the political suppression and threat of violence had forced the Chinese populace to resign from any kind of opposition, and they simply had to endure the long march. And this resignation led to possibly the most tragic of circumstances during the Great Leap Forward initiative. Cannibalism. Exact numbers are hard to come by, but oral tradition and official reports alike dictate the widespread adoption of the practice during the Great Leap Forward. And journalist Jasper Becker reports in his account of what is now known as the Great Chinese Famine, titled Hungry Ghosts, Mao's Secret Famine, that cannibalism was witnessed, quote, on a scale unprecedented in the history of the 20th century. And still, Mao refused to give way. With what little acknowledgement he gave to the suffering of the people, he blamed solely on natural disasters and distributed propaganda throughout the nation outlining the severe droughts and blights that were plaguing the land. But again, Jasper Becker declares, quote, No blight destroyed the harvest. There were no unusual floods or droughts. The granaries were full, and other countries were ready to ship in grain. And the evidence shows that Mao and the Chinese bureaucracy were in full control of the machinery of government. End quote. It was all a lie. This continued until January of 1961, when finally, Mao's advisors staged nothing short of a mutiny and forced him to reverse his agricultural policies, ceasing the exporting of grain entirely. In fact, China actually began importing grain from Australia and Canada, finally giving the citizens of China the food they desperately needed to survive. And with that, the Great Chinese Famine was finally over. But not without taking the lives of between 30 million and 55 million people. To put that into perspective, the Great Irish Famine killed 1 million people. In World War I, 22 million people died. We're talking about at least 30 million people, and possibly even 55 million, maybe more. This was a death toll unheard of in the modern age, but it was kept secret for at least 20 more years when, following the death of Chairman Mao, official investigations were finally launched. The Great Leap Forward, to put it simply, was a disaster. In 1962, Chairman Mao Zedong finally admitted his fault, and from that point until the launch of the Cultural Revolution in 1966, Mao left nearly all decision-making to his subordinates. I think it's safe to say that Mao was ashamed of his stubbornness during the Great Leap Forward initiative, and no longer trusted his own agricultural and economic decision-making. If I'm being totally honest, I think that's for the best. Also in 1962, the Chinese government held a number of conferences that addressed anyone impacted by the anti-rightist campaign, offering rehabilitation for any personal loss incurred, which seems to have been altruistic. In the aftermath of the Great Leap Forward, the Chinese government was reversing their strictly communist ideologies on a lot of different grounds and needed the help of capitalist thinkers to jumpstart the economy again. Addressing the world, the Chinese Communist Party did the unthinkable. They asked for help. In 
They blamed the famine on the cult of personality surrounding Chairman Mao, which they had all been perpetrators of, and declared the second five-year plan, quote, a serious loss to our country and people. Close quote. In terms of economic output, the first year of the Great Leap Forward seemed to be beneficial, with iron production rising 40% in the first year alone, and another 60% in the two years following. But the death toll of the famine caught up in 1961, where production plummeted, and it wouldn't reach the same highs until two years into the next five-year plan, Industrial populations were decimated by the famine, as more people continued to die in the communes and food shortages became more common in urban areas. It would take years of rebuilding what had been lost. And finally, in 1962, the Great Leap Forward initiative came to an end, and the third five-year plan began, with Maoism taking a back seat, and other slightly more democratic capitalist and humanist minds working to repair the damage done during the second five-year plan. And fortunately, it worked. Paving the way for more capitalist policies, increased democratic control, and more personal freedom enjoyed by the Chinese people for the next 20 years, until the infamous Tiananmen Square protests in 1989. And so my final thought before we call it a day with this very tragic, sad story the Great Leap Forward initiative is one of the most commonly used quips against the ideologies of communism, similar to the Ukrainian famine in the Soviet Union or the Ethiopian famine in 1984. And all of these were under communist regimes and had very little to do with any natural causes, and yet millions of lives were lost due to government oversight or ignorance because of the strict quotas forced upon government officials and thoughtless policies instituted by big governments. I'm not saying anything about communism right now. I'm just saying there seems to be a little bit of a correlation here. The Great Leap Forward and subsequent Chinese famine were tragedies and disasters in nearly every sense of the word, exacerbated by inept and stubborn leadership, and are a lesson to the world of the dangers of attempting to establish a purely communist society. For a long time, I was confused as to why the Western world hated communism so much, but with the research I've been doing lately about the damage wrought upon nations who have become communist through the last century, I'm starting to understand. Again, there seems to be a little bit of, little bit of a correlation here. All right, and that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me this week on Tanner Talks about stuff that happened. Like I said before, if you enjoy the podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and drop a five-star review so we can get more people involved with the conversations about history and talking about why it's so important to remember the things that have happened in history so we don't repeat them. Am I right? Am I wrong? I think I'm right. But that's just because I'm a history freak. So, without further ado, I will see you next week on Tanner Talks about stuff that happened. We're going to be talking about Vikings, and that is going to be a fun episode. I'm going to start researching it right away, and I'll catch you all next week. Next Sunday, as always, see you then.